welcome to episode six of Battlefield Next. My name is Major Jason Coffey. Before we get started with this episode, let's do some housekeeping. First, the views expressed on the podcast are the views of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Today's episode is an interview of Mr. John Norton Moore, the Walter L. Brown Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Virginia School of Law, by Major Travis J. Covey, Vice Chair and Professor of Law in the National Security Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. The episode is an addendum to the 13th Soft Warren Chair Lecture given by Mr. Moore at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. So, without further delay, we move to the podcast. All right, good afternoon. My name is Major Travis Covey. I am the Vice Chair at the National Security Law Department here at the Army JAG School. Uh, it's my pleasure today to uh, get to interview uh, Professor uh, Emeritus John Norton Moore from University uh, University of Virginia uh, School of Law. How are you, sir? Just fine, Major. It's always a great pleasure to be here at uh, the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, which is... Uh, one of the finest uh, educational institutions uh, in the world dealing with uh, critical, critical national security issues. Well, we appreciate that, sir. Uh, so today we just wrapped up the 13th annual Soft Warren Lecture on National Security Law. You were our, our lecture today. We really enjoyed that. Uh, you were also the 1983, the original Soft Warren or soft lecture it was then. It was a soft lecture, and then it became the soft Warren lecture. You were the first one in 1983, is that correct? That's correct, 37 years ago, and I started my lecture today to the group by saying I don't have a foggiest uh, remembrance of what I talked about 37 years ago. So uh, why don't you uh, fill our listeners in on sort of, uh, for, for those that may be unaware, your, your background in national security law and, and, and how you came about becoming one of the, one of the leading experts in this field. National security law has um, basically been my baby for many years. Uh, I taught the first course ever taught in national security law and uh, created the first uh, really comprehensive casebook in national security law some years ago. Uh, we were in our third edition when I retired uh, recently from the University of Virginia School of Law. And I'd also chaired the American Bar Association Standing Committee on National Security Law. In fact, I'm the one that gave its name to it of the Committee on National Security Law and shared that for about four different terms. So I've uh, lived with this field for many, many years and uh, obviously to do so have great admiration uh, and have worked very closely uh, with the United States military and uh, our Army JAG particularly uh, since we were so blessed to have the Army JAG School and Legal Center immediately adjacent to the University of Virginia School of Law in Charlottesville, Virginia. Great. Uh, well, I'll tell you, sir, I mean, for those of us that, that, that deal with this field, I mean, I don't think there's there's a single one of us that aren't familiar with uh, the books that you've got your name on and, and, and the writings that you've you've given. Uh, can you uh, just give us sort of a just sort of a quick overview of, of what it was you, you lectured on today? Be happy to. The lecture today was on defending defense in the law of jus ad bellum, uh, and I refer to this as a contemporary crisis. And uh, as you know, the 
creation of an effective right of defense is extremely important. And one of the uh, greatest concerns and risk out there is when the law begins to be turned on itself in a way that it differentially imposes cost on aggression uh, and does it on, on defense instead of on the aggression, or it begins to confuse aggression and defense or treat the two the same. And when that happens, you're really losing the deterrent effect of law itself. It's almost like an autoimmune disease. It will have turned the international order's own immune system against itself and encouraging aggression. And I'm afraid uh, we live in a world that's doing that a little too much. And so this was a, uh, a cry to a group that works uh, in this field every day that we really need to focus on restoring Yusad uh, Bellum to the proper understanding under the United Nations Charter. What do you think the next steps are in order to, to make sure that, that occurs? Well, I think part of it is understanding how we got here. Where did the crisis come from? And on that, I think it's really uh, uh, three principal causes. The first of those is new forms of clandestine aggression, which make it harder for the general population to perceive that an attack is taking place. Uh, in turn, this creates confusion that the open defensive response is itself the attack. The second cause is a steady erosion of the right of defense. I'm sorry to say, within my own international law uh, community, and uh, also um, in some of the mistaken decisions on use of force from the International Court of Justice. And then I think a third effect uh, perhaps more an effect than the cause like the first two, uh, is that totalitarian aggressors have increasingly understood that international institutions such as the International Court of Justice are open for the aggressors used to attack the defensive response. That is, the aggressors have learned to use what's been called lawfare against the defensive response. Wow. Uh, so looking forward, uh, what is your, uh, I, I know you, that it, during your, your lecture today, you mentioned some, uh, some things you're working on going forward. Can you uh, expand on that? Well, I think there are a number of things that we need to understand to try to get back to the classic concept of the law fully su supporting uh, a very effective right of defense. The first of those is we have to recognize the centrality of the UN Charter's use of force provisions. Uh, that's the one that governs lawfulness of the initiation of force in international relations. And so if there is some uh, asserted customary international law that's counter to the Charter, it is the Charter that basically governs. And uh, today, many of the what I call minimalist interpretations of the Charter that are undermining the right of effective defense um, are things that really 
do not have adequate uh, state practice behind them to be creating customary international law. I think a second thing is to get back uh, to the notion of, of the correct meaning and history of the United Nations Charter. Because when you look at it and look at the travel of the Charter, it's very, very clear that the uh, draftsman of Article 2.4, that was the key provision on use of force, um, were very, very clear in what they wrote that uh, uh, the right of defense would not be uh, impaired. In fact, let me just uh, give you a quote, a couple of quotes, one from the Commission One Committee One final report, quote, the use of arms in a legitimate self-defense remains admitted and unimpaired. And then in addition to that, um, uh, Subcommittee 11A, that was the one drafting the proposal for Article 2, subparagraph 4 of the Charter, reported, quote, it was clear to the subcommittee that the right of self-defense against aggression should not be impaired or diminished. So unfortunately, there's been a tendency of minimalists, uh, as I call them, to simply look at the language in Article 51 of the Charter of, quote, if an armed attack occurs, end quote, to basically challenge the uh, legitimacy of response in uh, settings of secret warfare or indirect aggression or terrorism uh, and other such settings that don't have full field armies moving across uh, uh, national boundaries. And uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, th there's very little understanding that in the uh, drafting of the charter, that was done in another committee, not the committee basically dealing with uh, primary responsibility for lawful use of force under the charter. It was done dealing uh, with the uh, role of the Security Council and a variety of other issues on regional arrangements. And Article 51 actually came out of a discussion on regional arrangements. And it was one in which the Latin American countries wanted to make sure that they would have a right of defense uh, under the new Inter-American Treaty that was going to be set up that is today the Rio Treaty. So it was not uh, designed to uh, override or to take away from the correct meaning of Article 2, subparagraph 4 uh, of, the, uh, of the Charter. And as I understand it, you mentioned today that there's a distinction with the sort of the traditional U.S. view of, of treaty interpretation versus, I guess, an, an international perspective. Is that is that correctly characterizing it? I, yes, this is a matter of uh, the permissibility of reviewing negotiating history or travaux uh, preparatoire uh, in the French of uh, a treaty and the interpretation of that treaty. And um, the American view, as reflected in Supreme Court decisions in American practice, is that um, it is permissible, indeed usually desirable, to consult the negotiating history of a treaty in interpreting, interpreting provisions of the treaty. 
what I refer to as this minimalist uh, interpretation of the charter, a textualist approach, is predominantly a European view of treaty interpretation as embodied today in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Uh, but I will always remember the outrage expressed against that approach by my professor of law at Yale and mentor, Myers McDougall, who had been a member of the United States delegation of the Vienna Convention negotiations. And in large part because of that difference in treaty interpretation, um, the United States, 50 years after the conclusion of the Vienna Convention, is still not a party. But, um, but this goes far beyond the difference in treaty interpretation between Americans and the European, or uh, some might say a, a different approach than the American approach. And that is that um, even under the Vienna Convention, a strict textualist approach uh, it is permissible to look at that uh, negotiating history when the meaning of a provision of a treaty is ambiguous. And in this particular case, it's absolutely clear uh, what those ambiguities are in the text of the U UN Convention and, uh, and the Charter. And if you'd like me to go through those four, I would be happy to do that. Well, sure, sir. Well, the first of the semantic and syntactic ambiguities in the text of the UN Charter itself is that would not Article 2.4 negotiated in Commission 1 on the purposes and principles of the Charter, which was clearly felt by the framers to be the general provision concerning the scope of the right of defense, prevail if in conflict with Article 51 negotiated in Commission 3 on regional arrangements? In other words, to interpret the charter use of, force provision, use of force provision, there are two principal provisions, not just one. Uh, Article 2, subparagraph 4, and Article 51. The second is that the language of Article 51 itself, counter to this minimalist interpretation, is not clear. For if the right of individual or collective self-defense is an inherent or natural right, can such a right be limited by the subsequent phrase in the same article of if an armed attack occurs? And then third, the equally authentic French version of Article 51 uses the language, quote, aggression armée, rather than the English version armed attack. Uh, that language seems to point to the broader traditional terminology of aggression. The fourth point is that uh, there's an ambiguity even in the if an armed attack occurs language. Does it mean that we're simply looking at an example of a lawful setting of defense? Or uh, was it intended to mean if and only if an armed attack occurs? And the minimalist interpretation is that very narrow if and only if, but that's not the way the language was written. It's a lot to absorb there, sir. Uh... Uh, we really appreciate that. I would encourage uh, those that are, that are interested in this, which I think if you're listening to this, you probably are, uh, to go ahead and, and listen to your entire lecture that you gave earlier. It's going to be available in multiple uh, forums. But I guess one of the last things I'd, I'd like to ask you is, you know, you said you didn't really remember what you covered uh, 37 years ago in uh, in the original soft lecture, 1983. What, uh, looking back on it, just some words of wisdom, what would you, what would you, uh, if you were going to give one again in 37 years, what, what do you think you'd like to 
to hope has happened it's changing from 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 now until then you know looking forward i guess well i certainly hope that uh, 37 years from now uh, we will be protecting the right of defense more effectively uh, and interpreting the charter correctly as it was intended to be interpreted as opposed to uh, uh, certain decisions of the use of force, the International Court of Justice, and things like the Israeli wall case, in which the uh, International Court of Justice astoundingly said that there was no right of defense against non-state actors, but Israel had simply built the wall to try to protect itself uh, in that setting. Well, my, like I said, my name is Major Travis Covey here with the uh, National Security Law Department at the, the Army JAG School, and I'm sitting with Professor John Norton Moore, uh, our 13th annual sophomore and lecturer, and uh, I re we really appreciate having you come out uh, and all that you've done for us and all that you've done for the school. Uh, our newly honorary faculty member made the day. Uh, we really appreciate that, sir. Thank you very much. It's always a privilege and a pleasure to, to be here. I have the highest regard for the uh, United States Army JAG Corps, absolutely fabulous uh, group of some of our finest uh, lawyers, international lawyers in the country. Thank you, sir, very much. And for those of you that didn't uh, didn't get a chance to listen to the lecture today, I would encourage you to uh, go on and uh, and listen to that lecture, which should be available on the JAG website. Thank you. That's it for episode six. For more information related to FCD, you can follow us on Twitter at JAGFCD or by visiting our webpage. Finally, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. While this is a podcast created by U.S. Army Judge Advocates from the Future Concepts Directorate, our goal is to reach other judge advocates and lawyers across the DOD, law students, and members of academia. Your reviews help make this possible.